Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. I'm J.F. Martel. In our last episode, Phil and I began our exploration of the 1922 essay on the relation of analytical psychology to poetry by the Swiss psychologist Carl Jung. A good portion of that conversation was spent distinguishing Jung's way of analyzing art from that of his mentor and eventual arch-nemesis, the equally great Austrian psychologist Sigmund Freud. Jung agrees with Freud that Art is the result of psychological processes, of course. But for him, this doesn't make art reducible to psychology. By turning the work of art into a symptom of its creator's personal pathologies, Jung says, one loses the real essence of the artwork, that is to say, the impersonal symbol that it conveys. Now, symbols are weird entities. They are not, according to Jung, fully interpretable, even though they command us by their nature to interpret them. Symbols express aspects of reality that we humans have yet to decipher and may never decipher. It's in the symbol that the archetype enters our field of awareness. And according to Jung, nowhere is the archetype more tangibly manifest than in the worlds of myth, religion, and of course art. What follows is a vertical descent into this realm of the archetypes. In this episode, we ask the questions, where do symbols and archetypes come from? How do they manifest for the creative artist about to give them form? And how does this affect the meaning of art? Unfortunately, we didn't have time to delve into the rather urgent follow-up question, how can I make sure the archetypes continue to thrive in the human, all-too-human confines of present-day society? So I thought I'd answer that one right off the bat. The answer is, by supporting Weird Studies on Patreon, of course. Weird Studies patrons are a lucky bunch. Every off week, they get exclusive access to new, singular expressions of the collective unconscious, as filtered, of course, by your very humble hosts. Most recently, Phil put out a whole series of solo podcasts on the history of Western music, and we've made these available to both the readers' and listeners' tiers. So check out the Weird Studies Patreon and see if ensuring humanity's continued access to the fount of creation is something you can get behind. We won't judge you if you decide it isn't. All right, on with episode 74, The Luminous Parasite, Jung on Art, part two. Enjoy the show. Just by way of summarizing uh, what was said last time. So last time we really focused on contrasting Jung's approach to Freud's approach. And uh, Jung is um, cautioning us against any method that would reduce the artwork to, you know, the doctrines that method might um, imply or whatever. Yeah. And I just want to read this little bit. 
What page? Uh, page 306, where he, he sums that up. So he says such overreaching, these overreaching approaches strips the work of art of its shimmering robes and exposes the nakedness and drabness of Homo sapiens, to which species the poet and artist also belongs. The golden gleam of artistic creation, the original object of discussion, is extinguished as soon as we apply to it the same corrosive methods that we use in analyzing the fantasies of hysteria. The results are no doubt very interesting, but may perhaps have the same kind of scientific value as, for instance, a post-mortem examination of the brain of Nietzsche, which might conceivably show us the particular atypical form of paralysis from which he died. But what would this have to do with Zarathustra? Whatever its subterranean background may have been, is it not a whole world in itself, beyond the human, all too human imperfections, beyond the world of migraine and cerebral atrophy? And I like that because it reminds us again that there is more to a work of art than the artist, what the artist puts in from his own experience or his own pathologies or whatever. There's always something else. And I just wanted to draw out, like, just pick out a few phrases and words here to create a kind of image of what Jung might be getting at. He talks about a, the golden gleam of artistic creation, a whole world in itself, and um, something beyond the human. So the golden gleam of a world beyond the human. It's kind of like that shining of the work that scientific methods try to extinguish through their analyses, or don't try, they end up extinguishing or explaining away. But that gleam is precisely what makes the work of art an object of inquiry to begin with. That's what makes us yeah. set it apart from other things. And so is there a way to talk about works of art psychologically, scientifically, whatever, while recognizing that gleam, that otherworldly non-human gleam, not just recognizing it, but recognizing that it is that, that special something that defines it as a work of art, that makes it something outside the reach of our normal kind of uh, literal or um, discursive modes of thinking. Right. And that's kind of what we were saying last time is that there's more to art than that. And now maybe today we can dig a little bit more into what that means and and how you yeah. uh, deals with that reality. Yeah. 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 The question of how do you how do you do both? How do you still honor that gleam, the shimmering robes? Um, you recognize that gleam of something special that makes an artwork worth talking about in isolation from the rest of the world uh, makes that a plausible move in the first place, uh, while at the same time maintaining some kind of scientific outlook on the work of art. I feel like that's kind of a uh, something that Jung is trying to do throughout this essay uh, by trying to demarcate exactly what things belong to art and what things belong to science. Although it gets sticky, you know, because the whole first part of the essay, it seems like he's sort of almost sort of saying like, as a scientist, I can really only talk about the mechanisms by which the artwork comes into being. And he talks about two, which he calls introverted and extroverted, which are, is a very interesting way of breaking down creativity. And I, I want to return to that. Oh, yeah. But then towards the end, he actually does kind of start talking about art on the level of content. And this is getting back to the idea of archetypes, which we discussed last time. Let me just quickly um, find a passage. Sure. So this is on page 318 in the Viking edition, 
Portable Young, edited by Joseph Campbell, he says, uh, in the case of a symbolic work, and we talked a little bit about symbols last time, and I think we need to probably return to that topic again. In the case of the symbolic work, we should remember the dictum of Gerhard Hauptmann. Poetry evokes out of words the resonance of the primordial word, end quote. And Jung goes on to say, the question we should ask, therefore, is what primordial image lies behind the imagery of art? And so here, having spent the first part of the essay acknowledging the singularity of the artwork, its shimmering robes, while at the same time being able to approach it as a scientist who must necessarily approach things on the side of their generality, uh, their likeness to other things. Uh, and he sort of implied that uh, a scientist oversteps his or her bounds when they are talking about the content of art. But here he does seem to be talking about the content of art, uh, what primordial image lies behind the imagery of art. And he goes on to, to write, this question needs a little elucidation. <laughs> you can say that again. I'm assuming that the work of art we propose to analyze, as well as being symbolic, has its source not in the personal unconscious of the poet, but in a sphere of unconscious mythology whose primordial images are the common heritage of mankind. I have called the sphere the collective unconscious to distinguish it from the personal unconscious. The latter I regard as the sum total of all those psychic processes and contents which are capable of becoming conscious and often do, but are then suppressed because of their incompatibility and kept subliminal. Art receives tributaries from this sphere too, but muddy ones, and their predominance, far from making a work of art, a symbol merely turns it into a symptom. We can leave this kind of art without injury and without regret to the purgative methods employed by Freud. And so here he seems to be actually making a distinction between different kinds of art and mm -hmm. uh, the kind of art that he is happy to leave to a reductive method, something that would turn a work of art into something like a symptom, uh, is the kind of art that seems to be receiving most of its tributaries, most of its inputs from the personal unconscious of the artist. So he's clearly picking favorites a little bit. He's, he's moving a little bit beyond that scientific objectivity or the stance of scientific objectivity, which would say, hey, the evaluation of the contents of different works, that's not my business. I'm just interested in talking about how art comes to be as a psychological fact in the first place. But here he is, in fact, outlining what I think is almost a theory of aesthetics and that in some way reminds me actually of Arthur Machen's theory as laid out in Hieroglyphics, which... We need to get back to a, one of these days. We need to do a show on that book. It's such an interesting book. Um, but to be fair to Jung here, he is he does that in the near the beginning say that I will not be talking about art as a doctor. Um, oh yeah, that's, that's true. And Except yeah, yeah, I guess that's true. So I feel like there's a little bit of a high wire act that he's doing here, trying to be an athlete yeah. and a scientist at the same time. Well, he's trying a balancing he, act. He's He's writing from the place that Jung always writes from, which is a place that recognizes the ultimate contingency of all these freaking categories to begin with. You yeah. can only speak as yeah. a human being, and then you put on a psychological, a psychologist persona, then you put on a doctor persona, but then ultimately you're talking from your something deeper. Like the collective unconscious is just the psychological name of something that Jung found in the work of philologists and ethnographers and that sort of thing, yeah. things that they were already aware of. He's, and he's well aware that he's working 
in a cross-disciplinary kind of way. Um, but fair enough, though. I, I get it. Yeah, I'm not saying any of this like it's a bad thing. It's just returning somewhat to the the theme of the last episode, which was saying, it's sort of trying to think like, what kind of work is this? And we spend a lot of time talking about how he adopts a scientific rhetoric and deploys it skillfully. And that's part of his mission. Mm-hmm. Um, as a, a modernomancer, as I as I called yeah. him at the end of last episode. Um, well, anyway, I want to continue. I want to continue with what his actual theory is. But you make uh, a good so, point because it's at that point that someone like Freud would say, "No, now you're stepping overboard. Now you're getting out of right. hand." Yeah. So anyway, he continues in contrast to the personal unconscious, which is a relatively thin layer immediately below the threshold of consciousness. The collective unconscious shows no tendency to become conscious under normal conditions, nor can it be brought back to recollection by any analytical technique since it was never repressed or forgotten. The collective unconscious is not to be thought of as a self-subsistent entity. It is no more than a potentiality handed down to us from primordial times in the specific form of mnemonic images or inherited in the anatomical structure of the brain. This is something that you quoted last time when you were pointing out how the pop Jungianism does, in fact, tend to think of archetypes in the collective unconscious as self-subsistent entities, as you said last time, you know, as if we have a tarot deck in our heads and, you know... The, the hermit card gets together with another person's hermit card and makes a little hermit baby or something. Right, um, right. Like it's a gene. But, there's, a, there's a tarot gene. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he's talking about a kind of um, almost canalization of human behavior and human psychic possibilities given us by our evolutionary development. It's a good word. A vectoring of sorts. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so he continues, there are no inborn ideas, but there are inborn possibilities of ideas that set bounds to even the boldest fantasy and keep our fantasy active within certain categories. A priori ideas, as it were, and there he is waxing Kantian, the existence of which cannot be ascertained except from their effects. Um, And then from this point of view, he is saying that a primordial image you know, what, remember that question he asked, what primordial image lies behind the imagery of art? You know, at the bottom of 319, says a primordial image or archetype is a figure, be it a diamond, a human being, or a process that constantly recurs in the course of history and appears wherever creative fantasy is freely expressed. Essentially, therefore, it is a mythological figure. And he says, when we examine them closely, we find that they give form to countless typical experiences of our ancestors. They are, so to speak, the psychic residua of innumerable experiences of the same type. And from this point of view, the work of art that that connects, that uh, that that speaks to us, the gleams. On, that gleams. There you go. Yeah, yeah. or shimmers. Let's say gleams. I like that better. Um, the work of art that gleams is something that is uh, harnessing the power of all of those countless millennia and eons of human development as it is canalized into these archetypes. And so, therefore, the artwork that in some way or other, however disguised or sublimated, is engaging with the figures we recognize from mythology are going to be the more powerful, more durable, uh, more important works of art. And I thought that was an interesting contention. And maybe we can kind of think about that a little bit. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that's you just that's the key thing. Um, I mean, it should be 
pretty obvious. You know my book quite well. It's pretty obvious how massively influ influenced I was by this <laughs> text when I wrote Reclaiming Art. I mean, that's the distinction that he makes when he talks about um, a certain kind of art that he would not regret consigning to the purgative methods of Freud. He's talking about what like I called artifice in the book, which is basically works of art that are shaped and made for a specific conscious, deliberate intention on the part of the artist. Right. But then it gets crazy because, and we can get to that when we talk about the two modes, but the, what he's saying is that some aesthetic works call up actual forces of the psyche, actual um, uh, archetypes, uh, and that's what gives them their numinous quality. That's why we react to them the way we do. And the temptation, again, in the pop sense, will be to think, of, oh, so basically um, this work of art is basically emulating or reproducing or modernizing this myth. Like the myths exist as this kind of um, or text, and then art is a way of retelling the myths in modern times. Again, I think that's like that's that's missing the point. Well, for then from that point of view, you know, young adult fiction that was popular about a decade ago, like Percy Jackson series that just retell... Right. myths in modern YA fiction terms would be the greatest works of art if you could just mechanically decide you were going to. I mean, I'm not shitting on those books either. I haven't read them, so I don't really have an opinion. Oh, but like, I had to read Percy Jackson, my daughter. It's absolute shit. <laughs> absolute shit. But, but, but JF... <laughs> it's mythological and therefore a great work of art. Come on. It's anti-mythology. Prove, prove me wrong. <laughs> yeah. Well, I could. We, you know, if you really wanted to have that yeah, debate. I really want to have that could, debate. Yeah. It could I be done, but that's another story. Um, oh, okay. Well, yeah. I, 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 I mean, obviously I'm sort of kidding around, but I think that um, where it gets tricky is sort of like, okay, so I read this and I'm like, is that true? You know, like, I don't know. I don't know if I think that's true. And that night, the night that I read that passage, I watched Nashville with my son. My son is obsessed with the 70s and um, just like watches these films and just loves to just seep, just to marinate in their world weary cynicism. Yeah. Um, Nashville is about Nashville. Tennessee and about the country music scene there. It's a typical Robert Altman thing where there's a million characters and they're all ta always talking at once. And um, uh, it's very sharply observed, um, sometimes sort of comedy of manners stuff. But in the end, it's very dark. It's very cynical. It feels very hopeless. Um, at least this last time I saw it, I was like, man, this film's pretty dark. And I was like, okay, so what possible mythological content is there? Because this is just, it's just people kind of uh, realizing various kind of satirical forms. Like there's a clueless BBC journalist who's always accidentally saying really racist things to everybody. Just ignorant and insensitive things and uh, has absolutely no idea what an ass she is constantly making of herself. Um, you know, there's a devoted housewife who is seduced by this cold-hearted folk music singer, Casanova, who sings, who seduces her by singing a really beautiful song that he seems to be singing just to her. He's capable of singing this beautiful song, but he, his heart is cold and empty. And the moment he's done 
ruining the marriage of this very nice, the only really sympathetic character in the whole movie. He's already on the phone looking for someone else. And so, like, you know, you have this uh, very dark picture of an artist as uh, just an infantile user, you know, mm -hmm. uh, a, a taker. And just a whole collection of characters like this. Bottom feeders who are attracted by the music scene, hangers on, people working out their own obscure grudges, people who are shitty to their spouses. It's it's Altman, so it's stylistically very different, but its subject matter isn't that different from kitchen sink realistic drama. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of stuff that Arthur Machen said, like, you know, that stuff does not have that whiff of ecstasy, which is the sine qua non of true art. And... Like I said before, you could kind of think of Jung as doing, saying something similar to Machen, that when, where Machen says ecstasy, Jung says the collective unconscious. It's that something extra that gleams out through the artwork. And I was like, okay, so where is there any of this in Altman's film? It's a great film, but I don't feel like it is that kind of film. And then I started thinking about it. I'm like, of course, it's marinated and it. it's, it's, uh, it's fully steeped in archetypes. Well, the way you were describing those characters was... Yeah. I mean, he I, could have been talking about a Greek myth. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Something that I didn't realize until watching it this time is how all of the characters are, each of them, kind of blind. They're all stumbling around in their fantasies, but they can't actually see what's right in front of their nose. Um, yeah. That's a passably archetypal situation. People who are caught up in a veil of Maya. Um, well, yeah, the, 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 was it the land of the Lotus Eaters and the, the Odyssey where he goes yeah. and they're kind of. Yeah. And, and in fact, when you, out. Yeah, yeah. In fact, when you start pulling from the old stories, it illuminates this very modern, very time bound, very seventies, very kind of like it takes place during the bicentennial, which, you know, is sort of like the, the collision between the spasm of official patriotic celebration around the American bicentennial corresponding with like, you know, the OPEC embargo and gas shortages and all kinds of fucking depressing things happening in the United States that made people feel like this country was a spent force. And so like, there's that kind of irony, that collision of those two perspectives, um, you know, topical in other words, and very time bound. And yet talking about it in terms of the old stories, all of a sudden it's still that topical time bound thing, but it suddenly reveals this tremendous depth. You couldn't do that for every work of art. I mean, the Percy Jackson books are, consciously playing with these mythic archetypal things. And yet, I mean, I haven't read it, but according to you, piece of shit. So clearly, actually working with the mythological isn't enough. But there are works of art that however distant their surface attentions might be, they're marinating in this stuff. It's, it's I've gotten... said the word marinate like five times in the last five minutes. Can you think? guess what I'm thinking about? Veal? Nice juicy steak. <laughs> yeah. Um... Some people might say, well, you could pull this parlor trick on Percy Jackson. You could draw out the mythical themes, archetypes in Percy Jackson or any other, in Harry Potter, any other piece of pop culture. And therefore, um, you know, somebody like dude, Sam Harris dude, might make that argument. Don't talk shit about Harry Potter. We are going to get such bad email. I didn't say anything. I just said one could do the same thing with any no, of these You came stories. close, though. You came close. <laughs> okay. Oh, man, we Percy would never Jackson. recover. <laughs> okay. But the thing is this, 
there's it, it's precise. Percy Jackson is a great example because Percy Jackson is kind of an explicit version of what I think Jung would say. Oh, that goes in the Freud bin and what I would call artifice. And it's that Robert Allman didn't set out to say, I will retell the story of the island of the Lotus Eaters, but set it in Nashville in the 70s, yeah. and therefore read the material, and then in a kind of paint-by-numbers way, recreated the story. And they're probably better exemplars of what's going on in, uh, in Nashville than, than that particular episode of the Odyssey. The point is this, is that when we put on our Jungian hats, which are possibly made of tinfoil, I don't know. When you put on those little I, hats. I, I'm imagining a Tyrolean hat right. with a little feather sticking out of it. <laughs> exactly. Something Swiss anyway. And I'm yeah. wearing and I'm wearing lederhosen. I have no idea if they wear this shit in Switzerland, but I like to imagine that they do. So um, we're going to get I angry, suspect, angry, angry letters from Swiss people. I suspect that they don't wear them daily anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um, OK, anyway. So, yes. Uh, so what was I saying? When we're wearing our young hat. Yeah. When we're wearing our young hat, sometimes we'll say things like, oh, mythology, like world mythology is the model, the, the, the source. And then modern storytelling retells these old stories. Like these stories, as I said earlier, are kind of like an urtext, like a, like a, a given thing. Whereas in fact, what he's saying is that both what Homer was writing or what he said and later poets wrote down, and what Robert Altman was doing in the 70s come from the same source. So they're, they're both sui generis, and that's that they're both coming out of the same collective unconscious. One is not the, a model or representation of the other. They don't form a hierarchy like that. Jung doesn't make a distinction between mythology and art, or dreams for that matter. He sees all these things as expressions of the unconscious, and certain types of expression become codified in specific traditions that we call artistic traditions. But these are just ways of expressing things that every time it happens, it's the first time. And so artifice in that light could be described as art that is consciously representing another art form. So if I'm consciously retelling the story of uh, Hercules and I want to make it accessible to people today and exciting for people today, then I come out with that ridiculous cartoon that we all had to watch as kids, the Hercules cartoon <laughs> that played at six in the morning. Whereas, so here, Hercules, Hercules is basically a Superman. He's a, he's a good, you know, noble, stalwart hero who would never kill his own children. Who would never kill his own children, yeah. <laughs> as he does in the myths. And, and we know that the ending is always happy, and he serves his father faithfully. He brings Daedalus back to Zeus every time, running up the hill with the holding Daedalus by the collar. And so you can see there the difference is plain. It's just one is a representation of the other. One is an attempt to contain the other in a fully thought out, fully digestible, fully conventional form. And the other, meaning in this case, the original Hercules myths, contrary to the Marxist critiques that would see in all myths, just a, like part of the superstructure that maintains a sort of, like just leaving that aside, those myths are actually excessive in this, in their, in their, numinosity, that no single interpretation can fully exhaust them. They're not um, susceptible to 
exhaustive explanation. That's precisely why they last. And the same can be said about great art. So if you look at it that way, I think you can make a fairly strong argument for why certain works of art are products of their time, of the spirit of their times, as Jung would say, and certain works of art come from the depths and have more to say because they are saying something that is not sayable any other way. If you were an artist listening to this episode, you might think, what could I, as an artist, do to do the right kind of art that is harnessing the power of the archetypes and not just some kind of feeble artifice where I'm just taking mythological materials and, and shuffling them around? And Jung doesn't tell you, and probably no one's going to tell you, but I had a thought that one thing that might be at least an interesting bit of advice, I don't know if it's good advice, be like, if you want to actually work on the mythic archetypal level, then you actually have to work with these things as entities. Mm -hmm. Like it's actually then artistic creation becomes a kind of demonology. Yeah. You know, this gets to the part of Jung's art theory that I find most original and most interesting which is his idea of a, almost a kind of psychic automatism when it comes to art. And the idea that we mentioned last time, and uh, now it is time to revisit it, where the artwork is like a kind of split off piece of psychic substance. An autonomous complex in his language, yeah. An autonomous complex. It's split off from the conscious autonomous mind of the creator and becomes almost like in, in some places, the way he's talking about it, it almost sounds like a parasite. Um, so on the bottom of 317, he asks the question, how does an autonomous complex arise? For reasons which we cannot go into here, a hitherto unconscious portion of the psyche is thrown into activity and gains ground by activating the adjacent areas of association. The energy needed for this is naturally drawn from consciousness, unless the latter happens to identify with the complex. But where this does not occur, the drain of energy produces what Janet calls an abysmal de niveau mental, the or like a, a degradation of the mental level. The intensity of conscious interests and activities gradually diminishes, leading either to apathy, a condition very common with artists, or to a regressive development of the conscious functions. That is, they revert to an infantile and archaic level and undergo something like a degeneration. The, quote, inferior parts of the functions, as Janet calls them, push to the fore. The instinctual side of the personality prevails over the ethical, the infantile over the mature, the unadapted over the adapted. This, too, is something we see in the lives of many artists. The autonomous complex thus develops by using the energy that has been withdrawn from the conscious control of the personality. 
you know, you were saying that uh, Freud is to you a great weird fiction writer that you could almost sort of think of him as being almost like a Lovecraft type writer. Mm -hmm. This is some Lovecraftian shit right here. This is. is weird fiction. An idea of art as the formation of these entities that parasitize the person who harbors them and kind of fucks with their lives, like ruins their lives. It actually reminds me, this is in fact the exact scenario that happens in one of my favorite pieces of 19th century weird fiction, which nobody thinks is a piece of weird fiction, the opera Tales of Hoffman by Jacques Offenbach. Mm. Um, one of these days, I want to do an episode on E.T.A. Hoffman's short story, yeah. The Sandman, which is a fucking amazing piece of weird fiction. E.T.A. Hoffman is, for my money, the, like the father of weird fiction. And Tales of Hoffman sets a bunch of his stories. And the framing conceit is that Hoffman is a poet who has found happiness in love. And it's kind of means that he's not doing as much poetry. And so his muse decides to take the form of his best friend, Niklaus. And while being his best friend is also at every turn subverting his chances of romantic happiness until by the end, he's this broken man who's had true love yanked away from him cruelly at every turn. And thus broken is finally able to return to the occupation of writing poetry, which is what his muse wanted all along. But his muse is a terrible, selfish entity that just wants him to be creating. It's like the Twin Peaks entities like Bob that just want to generate Garmin Bozia. They want to feed yeah. on this specific emotional substance that they can create by terrifying people. In this case, you just make a guy miserable in love and he'll create poetry. And that suits the muse, this nasty little entity, just fine. And there are, I mean, in, in Jung's clinical work, every day he was dealing with people who were struggling with autonomous complexes that were screwing up their lives. And he's saying yeah. these particular sorts of psychoses are very common among artistic types. But then he does make a distinction between such complexes and an autonomous creative complex, which is an autonomous complex whose purpose seems to be to bring a very specific object into the world, namely a work of art, whether it takes the form of a poem or an opera or a film or whatever. And anyone who's worked in the creative arts will have, well, I think many of us have experienced this kind of possession. Oh, it's, yeah. It's like the colors of the real world begin to fade and all that matters is getting this thing finished. Yup. Just recently you were you were doing that remix of uh, John Cage. John Cage's Sonata 5. Yeah, right. <laughs> and you were yeah. telling, you were describing it in terms that were, uh, that Jung would have completely appreciated um, that this is how these things manifest. You become, they take over and it doesn't feel like it's your own thing. It doesn't feel like um, you're doing it. It feels like you're being taken over by something that's external to you. Um, which, and sometimes it's even yeah. sort of like, oh God, it's like having a painful illness, which by the way, that was something that George Orwell said, that writing a novel is like suffering a painful illness. You wouldn't wish it on your worst enemy. So what I did was I found a little passage of a John Cage prepared piano piece that just for a moment settles into a kind of a cool four on the floor kind of rhythm. And then I realized it matched the beat of Donna Summer's electro-funk disco hit, This Time I Know It's For Real, like matched it really well, 
and it locked up at 118 beats per minute. And so from that, just lining up these two things, just all these associations started flowing. And I spent a day obsessively working on this thing. It was so funny because like it was a, I think a Saturday or something and my wife would look over and say something and I'd be like, uh-huh, mm-hmm, yep, yeah, you bet. And then like right back to work and just sort of like having this sort of feeling of irritation, like everybody must shut up so I can concentrate on this thing. And yeah. like getting the thing created, finding the next, rounding the next turn to find the next creative operation that had to happen to bring this thing into being. It was like a blind will, like a force propelling me, like a mental image of those salmon that you see swimming upstream. You see these monstrously fat bears that have it made when they can just like find this place in the, sh in the stream and just like grab these salmon out of the air as they're like swimming upstream. It's such a, a reckless thing for salmon to want to do. And a lot of the time they just wreck themselves. They break their bodies on the rocks as they're trying to just force themselves upstream to spawn. It's just like a beautiful image of this blind will propelling creatures. And, you know, Darwinian would say, well, yes, that's the evolutionary drive to reproduce. And this is, I'm sure, true. But at the same time, you can feel something similar like propelling you even, and I'm not making any great claims for this little, you know, instrumental track. We'll, we'll put it in the show so people can listen to it. Um, if nothing else, it will probably be the only dance remix of a John Cage piece you will ever hear. And I think it's worth noting that you can be authentically propelled by one of these autonomous complexes and still create art that is not going to stand the test of time. This is so like doing what I suggested at the beginning of this segment, thinking of art as a kind of entity work and being down with being possessed, being taken over by entities, like actually inviting it, calling it into being and going with it when it happens. That is not going to ensure that the art thereby created is going to be any good. But nevertheless, it's a hell of a trip. Well, it's, it's, a, uh, yeah. it's a trippy thing to feel yourself taken over in this way. Just listening to you now, I'm getting these images, these almost kind of cliche images of like the, the, the poet kind of feverishly writing down the dictates of the muse and, and trying yeah. to keep up with the inspiration. And I mean, a cliche though it may be, that does happen. And Jung recognizes that, but also Jung also recognizes that that's not the way that all art is made. Exactly. And, yeah. then, and that's what leads him to distinguish two types of artistic processes and therefore ultimately two types of art, but they're not really two types. They're just two um, different two faces, two maybe. faces of art. Right. Correct. That's a good word. What we've just been describing this kind of like overwhelming possession where you feel as an artist that you're being, um, invaded by an alien force and you're trying to get the art out the way you try to pass a kidney stone. That process is what Jung calls the extroverted uh, type of art. And, um, he aligns it with what the uh, philosopher Schiller philosopher and poet Schiller called uh, naive art. Schiller had another category, sentimental art, which Jung associates with the introverted personality and another type of artistic process where the artist is meticulously, painstakingly and fully deliberately choosing each element, revising, you know, the Kubrick way or the Rothko way of doing art, as opposed to the Henry Miller, I don't know why I'm coming up with him right now, or the who's another great Dionysian artist, um, uh, 
the David Lynch way of doing art, which I think yeah. is very Dionysian in the sense that he's not questioning himself. He's not questioning his, he's just following the images wherever they go and really experiencing the film as though it were totally separate from him in the same way that we experience his film. Like Lynch well, kind even, of, yeah. yeah. The way he describes well, even the his, process. The me- yeah, the way he describes the process as being like going fishing. Puts exactly. himself in an almost totally passive role. He's just sitting there in the boat waiting for a bite on the line. A good contrast would be Lynch versus Stanley Kubrick. Those are two examples a lot of listeners will understand. Kubrick is obviously a kind of a sentimental artist in the sense that he is very deliberate and meticulous and revises constantly, revises each version of the script, tries multiple edits, looks at them from different angles and finally settles on one. Whereas Lynch, it's a first thought, best thought almost kind of way and almost a kind of Ginsburg way and then brings out a a film fully made, as Jung says, like Pallas Athene from the head of Zeus. It just seems to come out. Mm -hmm. Um, And Jung will say, well, is the naive type, the extroverted type, and he calls it extroverted because the artist who is possessed by his muse uh, or her, her muse and trying to put something out and trying to copy it down or taking dictation from the unconscious, that type of artist, one might think that they would produce the deeper and more numinous works of art. But that obviously that's not always the case. Uh, as you said yourself, you could be possessed by something and it, it could come out being bleh, it could come out as nonsense. Uh, whereas a sentimental artist who's very conscious of the process and very much in control from A to Z could nevertheless come out with a work of art that is extremely numinous and special and different. So the reason why the first type of artist experiences it as a possession is because uh, Jung says he adopts an extroverted attitude to the object. He's someone who sees the object first and then defines themselves in terms of the object as an external thing. Whereas and this was counterintuitive for me, the artist who's fully in control for Jung is the introverted artist. It's not so much that he's fully in control or or that she's fully in control. What's going on is that he or she identifies so fully with the autonomous complex that they can't distinguish themselves from it. So in a Mm. sense, ironically, the Apollonian artist, the artist who works for years and years over the same piece, able to explain every decision they made, is the one for Jung who is if one might say so, the most possessed. <laughs> like That's interesting. Uh, and Because uh, your conscious will has been entirely formatted. Your ego identifies with the archetype yeah. completely. Um, yeah. So That's interesting. You know, it's possible to find both the introverted and extroverted type in the same artist. Yeah, and, and thinking, in the same work. He says it himself, right? Yeah. Um, well, I'm thinking of Richard Wagner, who probably was on Jung's mind when he was writing this essay. I don't know for sure. Um, maybe somebody who's an expert in Jung biography would be able to say. But, you know, Wagner was a colossal figure, a Goethe-sized figure, or a Shakespeare-sized figure, like huge figure um, that any... German-speaking intellectual of Jung's generation would have to have grappled with. One thing that's interesting about Wagner is his, uh, you know, Gesamtkunstwerk ambitions, a whole artwork, his idea of creating. So actually, a lot of people would say that he was like a filmmaker before his time. You know, that what he meant by Gesamtkunstwerk was maybe something a little bit like what we mean by the auteur theory, where we you have a kind of a strong creator like Lynch or Kubrick or... Hitchcock or whomever, and 
they determine all the aspects of the work. So, you know, you write the script and you do the, and you, you are your own director of photography. And, um, uh, I don't know if that makes any sense. Is that even possible? Can you be your own director of photography? Oh yeah, you can, but usually you're not. Um, sometimes the director is so involved in the photography that they are for all intents and purposes, the director of photography, um, and sometimes the actual director of photography, the person actually running the camera department, will be called camera operator instead. But most of the mm. time, a director, I mean, this is one thing that the choice of a director of photography is itself an artistic choice. So right. you could still be a full yeah. auteur and still choose your director of photography because you're right. that choice. You know what they're delivering. So you choose yeah. them for that reason. Yeah, I, I'm speaking in ignorance of some of the technical details of filmmaking. But the point is that there are filmmakers who even, you know, if they have a DP who's doing the photography, nevertheless, they're exerting this very strong level of conscious control over oh, yeah. how the art is going to be. Uh, and Wagner was that kind of guy. So he is the composer of the music, but he also wrote the libretti, the the poem that everyone, everyone's singing. And he took that very, very seriously. In fact, he always wrote the poem first. So before he set about the quarter century long business of composing the four operas of his Ring Tetralogy, first thing he did was to write a prose scenario and then to write the full poem, all four parts. But what's interesting is that he had a very high opinion of himself as a poet because he was able to do it fairly easily. He just felt like, I have a craft, I'm skilled in this craft, I know what I'm doing, I intend to do X, Y, Z, and X, Y, Z, or Z for our Canadian listeners, happens. Whereas with music, he was much more prey to a kind of fits and starts rhythm, where if the muse wasn't with him, if he wasn't into it, if he couldn't catch the slipstream, he would just spend frustrating, agonizing hours not composing or composing very little. He said... A huge amount in his correspondence, in his writings, a huge amount about the writing of poetry. And he said next to nothing of any <laughs> detail about composing music. And seems likely, I know that there are some, I think Ernst Newman argued something to this effect, um, that he just kind of didn't know how he did what he did as a composer, not as an orchestrator. He That was a skill that, as he said, he came out of his mother's womb knowing how to orchestrate things to make them sound good. But the actual business of putting notes on the page, that for him was a fraught and almost completely mysterious process. And so it's interesting, and the same guy, the different parts of his Gesamtkunstwerk are created under different aspects. I find that interesting. Absolutely. And Jung does recognize that. In fact, one of his examples for a, uh, a naive work, so this is a work that comes fully formed out of the artist through a bout of demonic possession or whatever. His example is Faust II, the second part of Faust by Goethe. That's and, right, yeah. And the, the first part of Faust would be a great example of an Apollonian work, which was put, I'm using the words Apollonian Dionysian. That's, those aren't Jung's words. I just keep going there because that's where I see that dialectic and I keep going to it. But right. the sentimental type, uh, um, Faust I would be an example of the sentimental type where, where Goethe was very much in control of his, his faculties and the whole process was kind of laid out. Now, that doesn't mean that Faust II is deeper than Faust Faust one, or somehow is more in tune with the archetypes than Faust one. However, it does mean that the numinosity of the archetypes impose themselves more forcefully in Faust two, because 
as Jung points out, works that are done using that first mode, the naive mode, tend to be more dreamlike, more mysterious, more filled with gaps of logic, weirdnesses that invite one or impose on one the task of interpreting. Whereas the other works are... um, they don't seem to exceed, as he says, the limits of our understanding. They seem to happen in a world that's coherent, even if it's a fantastical world. Things make sense. Things go together. And for that reason, you might not feel a profound need to interpret it. It might just seem like something you can just take wholesale. And you, you, might, you might fool yourself into thinking you've understood it. So it's a really interesting distinction. And it's a distinction I've tried to make different ways um, on this show and elsewhere, but I think I've kind of found it through by reading this and talking about it with you. It's that the way I wrote it was just as the appearance of chaos and nonsense in the naive work masks an implicit order that exists inside it uh, or beneath its surface, so the appearance of order and good sense that appears on the surface of a sentimental work masks a latent chaos that writhes beneath it. So what I mean is that, nice. you know, it's nice. all, the, it's like you were saying, the two fa- they're not two types of art, they're two faces of art. But ultimately, if they are channeling the archetypes, it doesn't matter whether they were made through mode one or two. It's just that in one case, the weirdness hits you in the face. And in the other case, mm-hmm. the weirdness is hiding. And the task of interpretation uh, in the first case with a naive work, the task of interpretation is to see the order within the chaos. Uh, you look at something like Naked Lunch, great yeah. work of art, in my opinion. You can't just read it and go, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I get it. You have, I got it. <laughs> you have to read into it. You have yeah. to search. You have to make correspondences. You have to engage in the work of a kind of hermeneutics of the text in order to see the hidden order, the implicit order. Whereas in a work like um, like uh, 2001, I think, uh, there's an evident spiritual message, perhaps, or an evident kind of yeah. message about evolution and time and space. You have to find that chaos. You got to dig through yeah. the order to find the chaos. You have to disexplain. <laughs> you have to unexplain this is the wh- film. Yeah, this is where your idea of rifts becomes so valuable. Right. Rifts in the Kubrick type work, the the sentimental. It's in that mode where instead of finding the order in the chaos, you're finding the chaos in the order. Those rifts are those moments uh, where the chaos spills out. They're like little slits cut in the classical surface of the work. All kinds of chaos comes tumbling out of them. And the most famous, probably the most famous rift in the history of film is in that movie. And it's the famous cut from 2001. the bone. 2001. Yeah, the cut, yeah. the cut from the bone to the ship, which we'll get to in our next episode, which is about 2001 A Space Odyssey. But That's right, assholes. Um, one example that I am very fond of, I wrote about it in an essay that was published at Metapsychosis uh, some years ago, was about Vermeer's woman holding a balance. I'm not going to get into the analysis, but I'm thinking of maybe recording it as a kind of extra for our Patreon people, just reading That'd it. That'd be awesome. And That'd then putting dope. out the text for the reader's tier, just as a thing we could do. It's an example of, to me, a work that on the surface appears like the ultimate Apollonian introverted slash uh, sentimental work. But when you look closely, it reveals its chaos.
you know, the fact that I just name-checked Wagner there is going to sort of make, it's going to be familiar to longtime listeners of the show who know that I'm a uh, rabid Wagnerite, as David Foster Walsh would say, rabid as in foam. But <laughs> but uh, there might be some people listening who are like Wagner. Oh, isn't he that Nazi guy? Which, no, uh, he died before Hitler was born. So no, he was not a Nazi. Incidentally, some people would say the same thing about Jung because he's been accused of being a Nazi as well. But, right. Yeah. Uh, but Wagner, nevertheless, was a pathological anti-Semite who wrote one of the most vicious anti-Semitic tracts in history, which is saying something on Jewishness in music. It's Judentum. It's kind of hard to translate. And it is full of traditional calumnies against the Jews, the idea that the Jewish people are not creative, they can only imitate, um, that they have no autonomous culture of their own, blah, blah, blah. And although it's an exaggeration to say that Wagner was Hitler's favorite composer, as Richard Taruskin points out, no, that was Beethoven. And that's not Beethoven's fault, it's just Hitler visited his debauched passions upon art that was unable to resist. Nevertheless, it is quite an icky feeling loving Wagner and knowing what kind of a uh, monstrous psychopathology he gave vent to, not once, but repeatedly throughout his life to the extent that it made even other anti-Semites got a little uncomfortable around Wagner sometimes. And so, you know, in the contemporary world, having... An unacceptable political opinion is tantamount to representing it in your artwork. There's a kind of an idea that if you listen to Wagner's music, you are taking on board in some unconscious way the reprehensible ideas of Wagner the pamphleteer, Wagner the propagandist. And neither you nor I agree with that at all. No. And it would probably take us uh, a while to fully unpack that. But I will say that Jung gives us a very good reason to be suspicious of any simplistic reduction of an artist's art to what they've said and thought in their lives, reducing, for example, Wagner's ring cycle to that uh, poisonous anti-Semitic pamphlet, which people do all the time. There's a whole like scholarly industry of people trying to argue that, for example, the Nibelung of the ring cycle are actually uh, Jewish stereotypes. I'm not even going to totally negate that argument, but I also find the crass reduction of art to whatever the artist was supposed to have thought to be really annoying because for one, it just assumes that all of our psychic life is more or less conscious and what it, what takes place in one part of that conscious life is transferred unproblematically to every other part. And so the Wagner that wrote that poisonous pamphlet is the same Wagner that wrote The Ring of the Nibelung, that that same guy with all of his revolting ideas is secreting them in more or less coded form. Yeah. In his art. But in any event, so what do you make of all this? Uh, no, I agree with you. And I think that there are very good reasons to think differently on that point. Let's say that one were to look at the Ring of the Nibelungs and reinterpret it as a kind of anti-Semite tract. 
It, first of all, it's doing exactly what Jung cautions us against doing and what he attributes to Freud, which is to reduce the artwork to the personal unconscious of the creator. Now, if we entertain Jung and think that some works of art, all maybe true works of art, um, express the archetype, express the imaginal, well, the imaginal, as he himself makes clear in this essay, exists below and outside the sphere of the ethical. So it's not like the imaginal is good or evil. It's neither. It's forces, right? It's like saying the Alps weren't evil because they stopped the Romans from expanding into Europe. The Alps are just the Alps. They just happened to stop the Romans from expanding or made it difficult for them to expand their territory. Now, you could say those evil Alps are there to stop me from. But of course, you're mistaking <laughs> And what you're doing is you're taking an object that belongs to, for lack of a better term, nature, and you're seeing it as a cultural intended thing in your story. So if you take the work of art and you look at it as a work of culture, as existing entirely within the realm of the human, then you can pull tricks like that. You can say Wagner hated the Jews and therefore wrote the Ring of Nibelung as a way to express his beliefs that the Jews should be out of Germany or whatever it was that he believed. Even if he did that, though, insofar as the archetypes exist outside the sphere of the merely human, then even then that wouldn't be an argument to dismiss the Ring of the Nibelungs. That's the that's the thing. Is even if uh, if the art if the artwork is using the artist as a conduit or as a new nutrient medium, as Jung says, for its self generation, its self making in the world, then it will use the nasty parts of the personality as well as the good parts. It's not so much yeah. that the work of art is noble and Wagner is vile. It's the work of art points us to a realm outside the historical, outside right. the moral. And uses a fallible historical, moral or immoral creature to do it. Like you, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Like you can't be yes to true art and then no to that one, no to that one, no to that one because yeah. of its moral content. If you're going to say yes to art, you got to say yes to art and see it for what it is, which is something that's precisely, as I said at the beginning, something that gives off the gleam of a whole world in itself beyond the human. And that's, those are Jung's words, refashioned and remixed, I admit, but something that exists outside the human. So it's wrong, I think, to believe that in appreciating Wagner, one must necessarily, if only implicitly in a clandestine or surreptitious way, be condoning anti-Semitism. Yeah. Artists like everybody else are pieces of shit. They're fallible, horrible people like everybody here all of us and and that's not to say that that makes it okay to be an anti-semite or to be a racist or to be this and that we have to be moral beings first and foremost but it's precisely knowing the archetypes and knowing where the human ends and the non-human begins that allows us to develop a moral compass that can be integrated into a mature personality able to make its own decisions for the good of all <laughs> i will say something very cynical, which is that the people who are all about canceling, people who kind of made it weird there, people who said things that have been deemed to be racist or, you know, whatever. Well, what kind of art are they going to uh, listen to, read, look at, whatever? Um, you know, let he who is without sin cast the first stone, since none of us are without sin, then 
they're going to be looking for a long time. The thing is that this whole worldview, this kind of strange uh, moralism is made for a world that has in uh, a, a neoliberal world that has worked to erase any distinction between art and entertainment. And this is not me saying that entertainment can't be art, art can't be entertainment. It's not what I'm saying. But if you're thinking about entertainment simply in terms of like fashion, you know, the fashions come, the fashions go. The, 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 that cool... Trends, yeah. You know, that cool jacket that you enjoyed last year, it's out of style, so you ain't going to wear it, off to goodwill it goes. And its value has been pretty much completely eliminated by the change in trends, at least until that style comes back again later. And I'm not talking shit about the medium of clothing, the blah, 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 but, you know, I'm talking about the time scale within which... Things are expected to innovate and obsolesce, age and disappear. It's a product cycle. And the whole point is not durability. The point is always to be creating new product, getting the old product off to one side and creating new product. And if you are fully assimilated to the product cycle of entertainment, then by the time you discover that, I don't know, some entertainer that you've enjoyed, a rapper or a film star or whatever, is racist or sexist or whatever, well, then it's time for them to drop off the conveyor belt, time to move on to the next thing. And so your appreciation takes place only within a kind of temporal envelope. And that temporal envelope is set by the length of time it takes for scandal and public tittle-tattle to catch up with the creator, at which point you can just say, it's like, all right, moving on to the next thing. Uh, people who are fully assimilated to the product cycle of entertainment have zero interest in art uh, that is from another age. They're, they don't give a shit about Wagner. They don't give a shit about fucking Miles Davis or John Coltrane. You know, they like the idea of Miles Davis, maybe, because it's like, oh, he's, you know... He's a black creator. But then they find out that he beat his wives. Uh, yeah, no. Shitty guy. Don't need him because there's something else coming down the pike. So, you know, in a sense, I think this ideology has been evolved specifically for the arts ecosystem that we inhabit. That, that also ties into of that article by Lisa Ruddick, When Nothing is Cool, that we discussed in a very early episode on this show, uh, which uh, described our modern, postmodern, whatever, hypermodern world as one where there is a slow vanishing of interiority, where there's yep. less and less ability on the part of more and more people to have a kind of stable and consistent and continuous interior life. And interiority is something that is, as we said in that show and in other shows, it's not given. It needs to be cultivated and nurtured and built over time. And it's that development of an interior space, which is necessarily a moral space, a space from which one can take a stand against tyranny, racism, oppression, all kinds of things, because it's not mm -hmm. just following a trend, you know, like a, yes. a true trend follower 
should feel lucky today to have been born in our time. It depends what trends you're following, but some of the- There's so many of them. Yeah, there's so many you trends. You have your choice. You might be yeah. lucky. Oh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a trend person, but my trend is not racist, not sexist. Those are all wonderful things, of course. But if you were a trend person born in 1915, come 1925 and you'd be a fucking Nazi. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> because you would have just followed the trend or a Klansman. So you need an interior space. And at the heart of that space, you need what's, you know, we call a moral compass in order to make your own decisions. That's not easily done. That's really hard to do. And it's the work of a lifetime. But according to people like Jung, it's precisely mythology, art, religion. You don't need to practice the religion, but just knowing the content of religious traditions, spirituality, those are the things that exist in order to help us develop that interiority. And if you're going to hold that material, whether it's artistic, mythological, scholarly, whatever, all that stuff, you're going to hold it accountable if you're going to judge it on the basis of the character of the people who produced it, then you're left without any tools for nurturing and building that interiority. You can't yeah. open up that interior space. And yep. so it's really as, as noble as I think this moral call to be better is, and I do think it's uh, noble and I'm 100% behind it, as I know you are that we should be better people. Like the fact that Miles Davis made amazing music didn't make it okay for him to beat his wives. And same with but Norman Mailer was the same. And the fact that mm -hmm. he wrote some great books doesn't justify or condone what he did in his personal life. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Wagner, Jung himself, um, Freud, whatever. You just need to separate things, distinguish things. Yeah. The wheat from the chaff. And, and you need to be able to recognize that the moral quality of any action in this world is only moral or immoral on the basis of a deeper transcendent realm that is exactly what I think Jung is calling us to recognize. Yeah. When I said at the end of last show that Jung is using the powers of modernity to create a space within modernity that's nevertheless somehow free of it, what he's trying to do is to allow us to think the things that modernity makes it practically impossible to think and those are the things that allow us to become realized human beings, to be human beings with a fuller life, human beings with a soul that we have actually, you know, built. Like we've talked in the show about soul making, like particularly in the James Hillman episode. What we're talking about here is the possibility of soul making. This is a very particular way that Jung is trying to disenchant us from modernity. Like modernity is, even though its whole thing is disenchantment, supposedly, modernity's put a spell on us. It's put the whammy on us. And he's trying to get the stardust out of our eyes. He's trying to get the junk out of our eyes so that we can see things clearly. And being able to see that there is such a thing as depth, which is a precondition for being able to hear a call to the depths. This is something that he is... He's allowing us to hear that call. Mm -hmm.